Section 20 of Here and Hereafter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Price. Here and Hereafter by Barry Payne. Hashish. 1. The season was nearly at its end. On the Terrace of Shepherds were many groups, German, American, and English, stopping for a few days in Cairo on their way home. In the street in front of the terrace, the hawkers displayed their wares, panpipes, fly-whisks, images of the Sphinx, picture postcards, matches. One offered for sale an inlaid table that he carried on his head. Another handed up an old flintlock pistol, heavily mounted in silver, for the inspection of a pretty girl from Cincinnati. Every now and then a carriage drove up, and a party of tourists passed by the steps, followed by a dragoman laden with kodaks and dust cloaks and bizarre purchases. The bright sunlight flooded a scene of brilliant colors. At one of the tables next to that where the pretty girl from Cincinnati was sipping her tea sat three men of different ages. Mr. Nathaniel Brooks, a man of some sixty years and a rather distinguished appearance, was discussing total prohibitions with Dr. Henson Blake. The doctor was a man of wiry build with the face of a hawk and that indescribable look which comes only of strength and experience. The third man listened and fidgeted. From babyhood he had been precocious and preferred to associate with those who were older than he was. In consequence he sometimes had to sit, as now, rather on the outside of the association. He smoked endless cigarettes and drank something which is cold and not good for him out of a long glass in which the ice tinkled pleasantly. He was a fair-haired young man, whom the sun had merely freckled. He wore a single eyeglass, but did not always dare to use it. When you had got to the bottom of his failings, you found, fundamentally by no means, a bad sort of man. By name, Percival Lake. This was his first year in Egypt. Both Brooks and the doctor had known Egypt for many years. It was Brooks who was speaking. The Fallaheen should be allowed to dig, he said, and it should be made well worth their while to dig. But they do, said the doctor. They all of them do it in the summer, and they always have done. Yes, said Brooks. Prohibitions which are too strict are always evaded. It's the same thing with hashish. But what I mean is that if we succeed in stopping the Fallaheen from digging, the working European Egyptologist will find very little. The native will take care of that, and this is a case where the native has knowledge that the European can get only from him. That's possible the doctor agreed. What's this about hashish? the young man asked. I thought it was the kind of drug that one came across frequently in stories and rarely in chemist shops and nowhere else. Nominally, said Brooks, there is no hashish in Egypt. It is not allowed. It is contraband. I forget how many tons of it were seized last year, and I should be sorry to say how many managed to get through. Then the natives really use it? Of course they do. There is a common type in all races which requires a nerve alterative and will have it. If religion or sentiment or custom shuts out alcohol, then it will be opium or hashish. Egypt goes for hashish. And the prohibition is of no use, asked Lake. I wouldn't say that, Brooks replied grimly. If a native has a quarrel with his neighbor, he can, and sometimes does, sow cannabis indica in his neighbor's land and then report him for growing illegal stuff as soon as the crop comes up. That is useful. Speaking seriously, the prohibition may lessen the amount of hashish consumed, and undoubtedly has raised its price considerably. 
Vices are the monopoly of the rich. All the same, I had a boy working on my dahabia last year who was an excellent fellow. This year he was impossible and I had to sack him. That was hashish. And what is the effect of it? Ask the doctor. If you take enough and take it long enough, said Dr. Henson Blake, the effect is insanity. The given percentage in the asylums is fairly high and should perhaps be higher. They don't admit that they smoke hashish or have ever smoked it if they can help it, and it cannot always be spotted. But what is the immediate effect? A sense of bien-être, of the absence of all worry. Sometimes there are delusions. The typical smoker generally gets an excessive vanity, swelled head and becomes very quarrelsome. That is why Brooks had to sack that boy of his. All the same, said Lake, I should very much like to try it. If I thought you meant that, the doctor began, with a suspicion of a sneer. Blake was rather angry. I can assure you I am not taking for effect. There are some people who don't, you know. All right, said the doctor, unperturbed. Keep your hair on. I've got some tobacco prepared with hashish upstairs. It is some that I had to confiscate. I'll give you a pipeful and you can try it after dinner. Smoke it in your own room, though, not downstairs. Leave it alone, growled Brooks. Thanks very much, said Lake to the doctor. I'll come up with you now and get it. The three men rose. As they did so, the pretty girl from Cincinnati stepped up to the doctor. Say, doctor, listen to me. Am I to give that man five dollars and a half for this? The doctor took the scarab in his hand and examined it. No, Miss Jocelyn, he said. Why not? I call that a dandy scarab. White amethyst, genuine antique? It is not white amethyst, and I know the man who made it, the day before yesterday. If you want it for a toy, ten piastres is an outside price. The man will take that. My, exclaimed Jocelyn, thank you very much, and she returned to her negotiations. The three men passed through into the hall. 2. After dinner, Brooks and Dr. Henson Blake went off to see a friend at the Savoy. They left with grim, half-chafing junctions to young Lake to take care of himself. Lake, a little sulky, settled himself in one corner of the hall to smoke a cigarette before his experiment. And suddenly, Miss Jocelyn, whom he did not know, came up to him. She was a dark girl, pale-skinned and red-lipped. She had a little of that jaunty, almost slangy American air of being able to take care of herself, but she also carried the impression that this air was superficial and underneath it there might be poetry of a rather volcanic order. She sat down quietly on the other side of the table and said, Do you not know me, Mr. Lake? Lake said that at any rate he was charmed to have the privilege of making her acquaintance. But, she went on, I want you to behave just as if you had known me for some time. My Aunt Esmeralda is watching us from away back, and she's pretty cute. Don't smile too much. Offer me a cigarette or order some coffee for me as if it were an ordinary thing that you had often done before for me. Don't look at me all the time. Look away now and then. I'll tell you why I'm doing this directly. Lake did his best to act the part and to take things more simply. He was consumed with curiosity, and for that reason he said, as he lighted her cigarette, It is so nice of you to do this, to take pity on my loneliness, that I feel the reason why it does not matter at all. I'm unquestioningly contented with things as they are. I just want to tell you, I know Dr. Henson Blake. We were on the tourist boat together. He's playing it low down on you. That tobacco he gave you is ordinary tobacco. 
He wants to make you say afterwards that you got a lot of funny sensations out of it, and then he'll say there was no hashish in it at all and just laugh at you. You needn't ask me how I know, but it's the truth. I believe you. The possibility of it had occurred to me. Well, I have only to tell him that I got no sensations at all, and that's all over with this little joke. Yes, said Miss Jocelyn. But you can get back on him. That's better. How? Spin him a long story. Tell him you smoked it and gave you visions. Then when he's finished with his laugh, give him his tobacco back again to prove that you knew his game all the time. Excellent! He took from his pocket a little box in which the tobacco was placed, put it in one of the hotel envelopes, and sealed it and dated it. But the triumph must be yours, he said. She leaned forward seriously. Listen to me. You don't want to mention my name. You don't even know it, but I'm Irene Jocelyn. I've put confidence in you. See, he's not got to know that I've had anything to do with it. You promise me that? Certainly, but I'm puzzled. Why do you come along to save me from making myself ridiculous? It's very kind of you. I'm very glad you've done it, but why? She hesitated and blushed slightly. For myself, perhaps. It seemed promising. He was emboldened. What a pity I have wasted my time by not meeting you before. Have you been long in Cairo? A few days, she said absent-mindedly. My, she exclaimed. If I don't get back to my Aunt Esmeralda right now, there's going to be a deal of trouble. I'll say good night to you, Mr. Lake. He was rather staggered. Good night, he said. But I hope this is not the last time. It depends. Mind that when he's about, you don't know me. He watched her as she went up the hall. Her bright smile came off easily. She looked a little tired and hunted. That night he could come to no satisfactory explanation. He could only decide to do exactly as he had been told and wait events. In the meantime, the girl's face haunted him, and always as it had been when she did not know that he could see her, always with that tired and hunted look. What had been her story? What was inside her heart and mind? What cards was she playing? Why had she spoken to him? The questions were endless. His interest in her, strangely powerful, kept him for long awake. 3. The little farce was played out with great success next morning. Lake told a beautiful story and did it the better because Irene Jocelyn, breakfasting alone at the next table, was listening intently. After smoking the hashish he had heard the Sphinx talking, then a black and limitless ocean had broken over it, and out of the ocean a strange white woman had crept and cut herself with a gold-handled knife. Good, said the doctor with a dry triumph and the more interesting because you have never had any hashish at all. No? asked Lake. I thought that would be it. He tossed the envelope across to the doctor. You'll find your tobacco inside. How do you give it that green color? I think the score is with me. The doctor was angry, the more so because Brooks was undistinguishedly amused at the failure, but he made one shrewd guess. If I had mentioned the thing to a solitary soul, I should have been certain that it had been given away to you. As it is, I can't see how you came to think of it yourself. It's quite unlike you. 4. For the next two days, Irene Jocelyn successfully avoided Young Lake, and thereby drove him to the verge of madness. It even occurred to him to play a bold stroke and ask the doctor to introduce him. 
but he had the reasonable conviction that that introduction would do him more harm than good with this strange girl. He grew to hate Henson Blake. It was evident that while he was there, Irene would not speak. He invented excuses to get him out of the way. On the third day, she came up to him in the hall with hand outstretched. I just want to say goodbye to you, Mr. Lake, she said. We leave this afternoon. Won't you tell me anything before you go? I can find no reason why you should have interested yourself in my defense. Still less can I find any reason why you should have avoided me ever since. But I wasn't interested in you. You're not, how do you say, not in this act. Didn't I tell you that I was doing it for myself? Yes. You are clever. You found out the doctor's trick. I know him. I told you that I met him on the tourist boat. I knew what he would do. I'm stupid, for I also knew him and did not find out. I'm not vain enough, believe me, to suppose that you did this for love of me. She laughed and snapped her fingers. I wish to God that you had, he added, and the tone and simplicity of the words carried conviction. She changed her manner. She became serious. What was done not for love of you was done for hate of somebody else. Can't you imagine a woman wanting to hit back and too proud to let it be known that she wants to hit at all? Can't you imagine her hungering and thirsting to see a certain man fail, if only in some little thing, just for once? Can't you... Oh, you don't want the whole humiliating story, do you? No, no, I'm sorry. Goodbye. Goodbye. Only, you know, that is not for hate of a man. If you hated, there might be a chance for those who loved. She shook her head and turned away. A minute later, he heard her laughing and talking her best American to a group of hotel acquaintances. And this is perhaps the primary reason why Percival Lake did ultimately take to hashish in sober earnest. His friends have ceased to speak of him. Dr. Henson Blake is interested in the case. End of section 20. Recording by Michael Price.